Blog Talk Radio. Edition. Today is April 15th, 2017. want to thank you all for listening, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. Uh, I am your host, John Robb, and of course you can always go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, get it whenever the show is available, listen on your treadmill, however you want to do it. Uh, we don't judge, we just like to know that you're listening. So, we have a fabulous show for you today, 90 great minutes with three fantastic authors, we are going to kick it off with author Daniel Pine, followed by Navy SEAL Tom Shea, and then, of course, best-selling author Kate White has come back to talk about her latest book, so it's going to be a fantastic show. want to remind you all, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their works and their authors and everything that they have going on, new releases and everything else. So let's hop into our first guest. Um, we reviewed his, his last book, uh, and we thought it was fabulous, 50 Mice, so it was great that we were able to see that he came out with his latest one called Catalina Eddie, and we're able to get him on the radio and speak with him. Um, he's been a lot, not just an author, but a lot of film, TV, uh, a lot of multimedia, a lot of uh, uh, things that he has been doing, so it was just a natural kind of fall into that he's going to be writing some fabulous books, and Michael Conley is a big fan of his, so can't go wrong. So, Daniel, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. So, again, your latest book, Catalina Eddie, I mean, we found out about you with your last one, uh, 50 Mice, the magazine did, and we thought it was fantastic. And so now you kind of, uh, you don't write a series. They're all standalones. And so you're sitting there with that blank canvas every time you decide to kind of write a book, and Catalina Eddie is the last one that just came out. So give us a little bit about it. It was it was kind of inspired by by two things. I had these orphan stories wandering around that I didn't want to do as um, standalone books. They felt more like novellas, and they were also all in sort of this general area of L.A. crime, um, which has interested me for a long time. I'm a huge, you know, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett are two of my heroes. And oh, yeah. it just, Can't go wrong it, just kind of, <laughs> it just kind of seemed like a natural thing. I, you know, I I was a big fan when I when I was first writing. I read the Continental Op a number of times, and I loved the way that those stories were. They were they were standalone stories, but they were interconnected. But they weren't necessarily like a serial book series. They were just these glimpses into the life of this op. So I was kind of interested in in finding a way to combine these three novellas and make them into a single book. And um, I used a metaphor of weather because people make fun of our Southern California weather because it's always the same. But in fact, it isn't. But it kind of is. 
and there's a there's a film. Yeah, I like to tell people because yeah, because we live in Southern California. I like to tell people, you know, we do have four seasons. We just got rid of all the shitty ones. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Basically so there's this do. phenomenon called the Catalina Eddy, and I always wondered why every year there's there's this there's this thing called June gloom where it gets cloudy, it's overcast in the morning, it burns off by right. noon, it's beautiful in the afternoon, and then it repeats the next day, and it repeats every year. So I did some research on it, and I used that as my organizing principle um, <laughs> for crime novels. Interesting. Yeah. So what did you kind of find out? Because a lot of people, of course, that not from Southern California might not know the May Gray and the June Gloom and kind of all those things. But, of course, Catalina is the island that is off of Southern California. Um, basically, it's not its not very inhabited. I mean, well, there's a couple thousand people. There's really right. only one city called Avalon that's out there. You just get a lot of weekend boaters going back and forth, and it's, it's a nice little touristy thing. So when, when you decide to kind of set it, even though it's Southern California, Catalina always kind of seems a little out there. I mean, people just know what it is, but it's like, oh, those are island people. What was kind of your pull when you decided to kind of set something like that and kind of put it, um, it's not, kind of but use it's it not, as like your backdrop? It's, it's not what, set there, would, but you kind of use it as like what's your backdrop. 50 Mice, the novel I wrote before this, was set on Catalina, ironically. Mm-hmm. And, and as I was doing that, I found this weather phenomenon, which is basically a cyclical pattern of weather in the that that cycles and it's it's sort of ba- the boundaries of it are the the mountains the Santa Monica Mountains Catalina and the bowl that is sort of San Diego in that area so I wanted to kind of span those areas so one of the one of the novels is set in L A one of the novellas is set in Long Beach and one of them is set in San Diego and these weather patterns play a part in all three of them. Um, and I, I just I love to explore the Los Angeles and the Southern California that you never see that that we live, but doesn't often get expressed. Especially coming out of movies and television, we tend to use California for everything, or we use Vancouver for California. Um, sure. And I'm just interested in those things. I'm on this I'm on this TV show Bosch which is based on Michael Connolly's novels. And Michael has made a big deal in his career of using Los Angeles as a character in his novels. It's a very strong presence. And one of the great things about the show is we shoot L.A. for L.A. We shoot in Hollywood. We shoot downtown. We shoot these iconic places that the locals know about, that cops really go to. Um, And I've, Mm -hmm. I've just, for my whole career, I've been just interested in how place affects character. Well, talk about your characters a little bit in here. Talk about your protagonist and kind of, you know, why did you feel that they were like the best ones in order to kind of make your story? Because now that you kind of had the idea, now you kind of had to look and see who's going to play your parts. Right. Um, oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, it was a little bit, each of the novella, each novella takes place in a different time frame, um, first one is in 1954, the second one is in 1987, and then the last one is present day. And I was kind of partially tracking um, how noir fiction has changed over time. So the the 54 novella uh, 
the big empty is very much in the tradition of Chandler and Ross MacDonald and that kind of hard-boiled language. And the the main character, Rye Lovely, is is a hard-boiled guy, but but slightly tweaked, slightly tweaked to the Southern California version of a guy who came back from World War II but was in OSS, had a lot of interface with the nuclear programs, and is still dealing with that kind of thing in L.A. because one of the things that distinguished Los Angeles from, from the rest of the country at that time was we had the rocket program. We had, you know, we had JPL and we had... Um, we had the military, yeah. yeah, yeah, and there was also there's this interesting thing where um, the the LAPD aligned itself with the CIA and not with the FBI in the 50s, which made a big difference in how hmm. it went forward. Chief Parker was a big fan of of espionage and not a big fan of of J Edgar Hoover, so that plays a little bit of a of a factor, and it's a little bit of James Elroy. Um, and then in the 80s, everything switched. Um, the gray areas started to crop up, the war against drugs, uh, the Reagan era, the appointment of... The gangs, of, yeah. The gangs, the appointment of politically charged uh, federal uh, uh, U.S. attorneys... Reagan was the first president to really, really broom out people who who he didn't agree with or who didn't agree with his policies and bring in these young, fresh-faced, conservative federal attorneys to prosecute. And them probably one of the most, probably one of the most famous um, police um, chiefs in the United States easily was probably Daryl Gates around that time. Yeah. People knew Darryl he had Gates. a freaking video game out about him for crying out loud. <laughs> Yeah, it was also remember um it was it was right before but San Diego sort of spiraled into this weird corruption there were there was a uh there was a Republican yeah. sheriff who got who went to jail there was a Republican legislator who went to jail so that that landscape sort of interested me and the and the borderland the 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 drug trade between Tijuana and San Diego and then the mm-hmm. final one I I put in Long Beach because uh, Long Beach kind of bridges the two. Long Beach has this long history that kind of goes back. It's a little bit noir. Um, Portuguese Bend and Rolling Hills and, and that stuff, which is kind of old L.A. money. And then at the same time, it has a lot of new, blended, multicultural, you know, Vietnamese, Korean, Asian gangs. Uh, yep. So, so each of my characters kind of expresses the era that they that they live in. And I think when you start talking, you know, maybe movies wise, if people wanted to get a picture, I mean, L.A. Confidential um, kind of showed. It yeah. was a little It was a little earlier than that, but it still kind of showed how you know big city things can get very corrupt very quickly. <laughs> I mean, right. let's face it. I mean, you right. know, you L. got so many moving parts. You got so many different people going on that stuff is very easy to get involved with and all of a sudden it just spirals really quickly right yeah james elroy has really milked that that period well Mm -hmm. and and very literally um so i didn't want to i didn't want to quite tread on his territory i didn't really want to tread on michael connelly territory so i sort of threaded my way to my own version of of a crime story 
or a trio of crime stories. And they're they're they have they have a kind of loose thread that runs through them. They're not connected by crime or by plot, but there is a, a loose thread of of connection between each of the novellas that oh. kind of unravel as you go through. So what was kind of like your biggest challenge? Because this book is definitely constructed in a, in a kind of a different way. So you had to have a big challenge and, and like you said, kind of moving it along forward to keep it, uh, you know, to kind of keep the flow going. So what was one of your biggest challenges when, when you were getting into this and started writing it? Um, my, you know, my biggest challenge in in making the move from screenwriting to novels is always finding a way to get inside of my characters' heads. Um, and similar to that, connecting these three novellas in a way that felt natural and interesting, so that even though each of the stories resolves itself in some way the flow of the dramatic flow of the entire piece that things don't feel completely resolved until you get to the last one um it it was it was finding a way to sustain the emotional tension even though i might have been solving the crime story you know uh so that by the time you get to the last book portuguese bend and you get to the mm-hmm. end of portuguese bend you feel like oh this is where this goes um I I used I also used they're they're kind of I guess they're love stories. I <laughs> I remember I remember back in back in the day Steve, Stephen Bochco who created Hill Street Blues once said that right. all stories all stories are cop stories. And he may have stolen that from his mentor uh Bill Lincoln and Richard Levinson. But the, but I remember hearing that when I was a young writer and thinking, you know what? He's right because um Columbo was crime and punishment. Yeah. Crime and punishment is a is a crime is a cop story. And in a way, all stories are cop stories in the same because they're all you know all novels are mysteries to be unraveled. All protagonists are kind of like the the lone cop trying to figure out what the truth is. Um, I just think I think that kind of stuff. Is interesting. I like the blend of it. I like, you know, I like connecting. I like connecting literature with with cop stories and and going from. Oh there. yeah, well you hit two, of course, two of my most favorite shows. I mean, I am a Columbo freaking junkie. Uh, love all of that. Hill Street Blues, of course, when that came out, it gave people a new way to look into the police department instead of kind of like a funny way or may over the top. This was just more. Uh, kind of nitty gritty everyday kind of thing, and then a lot of the cop shows started to, started to more go that way. I think the Hill Street Blues kind of changed the way TV started making cop shows because people were like, "No, we really just want to kind of see what it's kind of like." And I mean, it's a little over the top, but it was still a little bit more. It was still a little bit more real. It still felt a little bit more real, especially with like the roll call and everything they had at the beginning, and then the setup and. I mean that was I mean that was just like an incredible period for for those shows. So I think when you're, you're right. having I, to capture the Yeah. I think you're right. I think I and I think that Hill Street also did this thing where where he threaded serialized stories. He he bounced around and and instead of having one one single main character, he had he had a, a composite Several. 
yeah, he had a he he had a whole collection of cops who represented different kinds of people, and it changed and, the way going forward that that cop shows were were received in the way that they were yeah. they were portrayed. They were human, you know. They were they were people. They weren't dirty, hairy. Right. They had they had families, and they had things that if they lost. You know it, that it would damage them in a way that you know could be irreversible. But and I also remember when they decided to put a man's butt on TV, how controversial that was because <laughs> it never happened. And they did it, and everybody was talking about, oh my God, Hill Street Blues is going to show you know a man's butt on TV, and everybody was all up in arms. Now it's like you can show almost anything you want except for just like the front. I mean, you can almost say yeah. everything except for a couple words. I mean, everything is now pushed. So. When when you were deciding that, you know, you needed to kind of tell these stories, what boundaries did you kind of want to push if you were looking at those kinds of shows and those kinds of authors that were kind of pushing the boundaries? How far did you want to maybe take that line out? Um, I'm interest, I've been interested in a long time. It sounds it's going to sound pretentious and it, it's not intended to be, but because I, because I sort of cut my teeth in television and movies, and often back when I was doing more movies, I would be, I would get sent manuscripts before they were published, uh, manuscripts that that people were maybe interested in making movies from. And I started reading all these pop novels and realizing that people were just writing treatments for movies. They weren't writing novels anymore. So I kind of got interested in bringing what I'd learned about narrative from movies and television, this new way that that stories were being told in a in a shorthand. I mean, Hill Street tended to cut out all the boring stuff and just show you the most exciting parts of each story and then thread them together. And I thought maybe right. there was a way to bring that back and have that inform novels. So if I'm doing anything, it's that. The other thing, I I love language. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Chandler and oh. and Hammett, but I'm also a big fan of Joyce and Faulkner and and David Foster Wallace. So those things don't necessarily line up when you're trying to write a a crisp crime thriller or or suspense True. story, but I like to find the way to use beautiful language to express very brutal and and primal things and vice versa. Um mm-hmm. so I don't know that I really push the boundaries of like sensibility. My language is probably pretty tough. I try to I try to be honest with how people speak, how people in the world that they live in speak, um, and what they talk about. I'm not interested in extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm much more interested in the ordinary man or woman who's faced with extraordinary circumstances and how they deal with it. Like a Harlan Coben, Joseph Fender, yeah. they do a lot of that. They, they're very good at that too. They're doing those yeah. things, yeah. You're putting yeah, ordinary people of, in extraordinary situations and seeing how how are they going to react. Yeah, there's this thing, there's this tendency that that we have. It it, it seems to be going across all all um, storytelling formats of creating these sort of impossibly competent, beautiful, talented, know everything characters. Um, and then throwing right. ob- and then throwing obstacles in their way, and I, I'm just, I I find that really disturbing. 
you know, I always I always crack up when people you know have series, and you know, there's a lot of authors that have some very long series, and I love reading the back of the book, and it's like this is the most diabolical killer they've ever come up with. I'm like, no, you wrote that the last four freaking times on the back of the book jacket. You need to think of something different now, or yeah. maybe the series is just over. <laughs> it's like, come well, on, and it, you know, and it, move it, it along. It, yeah, it sort of suggests a world where where everybody is a superhero and it and right it's just not true and it's not interesting and it's i don't think it's helpful i don't think culturally for our mythology it's helpful for us to be constantly present constantly presenting these impossible worlds that are fun they're they're great to sort of get lost in like star wars or or the marvel mm-hmm. comic but they don't really give you much useful information on how to live your life or how to deal with the problems that are in front of you. No, it's just for entertainment. I mean, I always crack yeah. up too on, you know, the detectives. I mean, I used to I used to love those things. Then I kind of sat back and I thought and I'm just like, you know, if I'm going to read, you know, I'll just say like an Alex Cross book. Well, there's no point in putting Alex Cross in some situation that you don't think he's going to make it out of because guess what? He's always going to make it out of it. So there's no tension for me anymore by putting him submerged in water with sharks swimming around him. You're like, oh, my God, how's he going to get out of it? He's going to die. No, he's never going to die, ever, (laughs) all right? And especially not on page fucking 10. So stop (laughs) it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And they know everything. (laughs) They they have art. They have all these super – they have all these super talents. They know the Internet. They know know how to code. They it just it gets But if they ridiculous. don't, they have a 13-year-old kid that knows how to do it, and then they yeah. figure it out for him. <laughs> One of the great things. And, yeah, and, and, and it's, also, it's also the age of coincidence. If they need a cell phone, they just happen to find one on the street. Or if they need something, it just happens to, just happens to show up out of nowhere like a miracle. And right. I find that lazy, really lazy for an author to write that way because it's like you're just being lazy now. That's all you wonder. Doing. Well, you I think. Yeah, I think maybe it's the pressure of having to write a book a year, which seems. It like could be, um, and I think that's also writing the series. This is why I'm not a big series guy. This is why I, when I see an author like yourself that has to look at that blank canvas every time and then come up with something new and fresh without really having maybe thirty percent of the book or forty percent of the book already written, because you already have your characters and now you're just throwing a plot together. Yeah. Um, and putting them in another situation, you know, you got to sit down and say, "This is blank. This is fresh." And now I got to start over all over again with nothing. That's a. I mean, to me, that that I know that it's hard to write a series to keep it fresh, but the author put themselves in that position to have to yeah. do that. You yeah, know, you're, you're I, different. I don't envy the guys who have to do that either. I watch I watch Michael Conley does it, do it, and he he loves doing it, but. I feel like you have to think he wants to do something else at one time. Yeah, you think that at at some point you're going to run out of things for you're going to run out of things to say about your character. You're going to run out of things to explore. Right. It's true over time they grow, they age. You can you can go that way, I guess. And I guess the more real they are, the more flawed they are, the more you can explore how those flaws affect their decision making. Mm-hmm. But still, I I agree. I mean, again, I come out of I came out of television, and and television is that if in spades. It's it's about it's about creating a format or a franchise, 
and then you're doing the same thing but differently every week. It's right. just the same characters. I mean, you're and exploring them over time. And the tension that you build, like in Catalina Eddie, that you build in Fifty Mice, that you build when you know that it's a one-off book. Anybody at any time could perish. You know, something could happen, irreversible. You don't know. But when right. you, but you know, and and that's the one, and that is the tension. Because when you put somebody in a situation, they really could get eaten by the sharks at that time. You have no idea. Yeah. It could happen. Um, yeah. Because maybe that's the tension of the book, that the character dies. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock was the first one to kill his character at the first 20 minutes of the movie. And they're like, you can't kill your main character. He goes, oh, but I just did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just did exactly. it. In the shower, dead. So now fix it. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that that was another kind of groundbreaking kind of thing. It's like, yeah, no, you can actually get rid of the formula and write a book and write a story a different way and still be phenomenal. Right, right. Yeah. So real quick, when you were in film and TV, what were the kind of jobs that you did? You know, a couple of films that maybe people know that you kind of worked on. What what were you doing in that? Um, I was a, I was a, in television, I was a series creator. I had some very unsuccessful series that no one will remember. I did work. Oh. I did work on Miami Vice when I was a baby writer. And uh, nice. I did a lot. I was one of those. I was like a concept car maker in in Detroit. So I made the concept cars that then later someone else took pieces of and and turned into a real series. Um, but gotcha. I worked. I worked on some great shows with some great people who went on to great success. And then. Simultaneously, I was in the movie business doing studio films. Um, Any Given Sunday, Some of All Fears, the Manchurian Candidate remake, Fracture. I have a new film coming out this year that I made with a Danish director, which is kind of wild. Oh. Um, And you have a cult classic. And you did a cult classic one called The Hard Way with Michael J. Fox and James Wood. The Hard Wood. Way. If, no, yeah. if you, people haven't seen that, it's a freaking hilarious movie. Yeah, it's The Hard Way and, and Doc Hollywood, which is kind and of And Doc Hollywood, yeah. I, Doc Hollywood's tremendous. I can't tell you how many people I, I meet who talk about how when they were growing up, that was their family night movie, which is, <laughs> which is great and hilarious. <laughs> But yeah. it was the movie their yeah. family would always watch if, it came, if they could find it on TV. They would watch Rock it. Hollywood. Well, I'll tell you what, Daniel. It has been a fascinating conversation with you. I mean, we could go on for a long time because now you can get into movies and now we could just go to a whole other direction. But I'll tell you yeah. what, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been fascinating to speak with you, to talk a little bit about you know your work, Catalina Eddy, um, and – do you want to have the last word to kind of let everybody know where they can find you, your best place for your social media, uh, all that stuff? Uh, I have a website, danielpine.com, and you can buy Catalina Eddy in your favorite independent bookstore or Amazon. And, of course, Amazon. Go to Amazon, <laughs> and click it, boom, and, of course, and your Kindle today. They can yeah. click it in 10 seconds. It's in your Kindle. You can That's have fabulous. it right now. You could be reading it right, right now. You can right. you can be clicking yeah. As you listen to my next guest, Tom Shea, you can, you can be, be what you can be reading Catalina Eddie, whatever you gotta do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Hey, well thank, thank you again, you man, so much for coming on. It's been fascinating. Uh wish you nothing but the best. Can't wait to see what you got coming up in the future. Good luck with not just your books, but the movies and uh that you got coming out too. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Bye bye. All right, bye. So again everybody 
That is author Daniel Pine. The book is called Catalina Eddy. Make sure you go to danielpine.com for more information on this book and, of course, all his other ones. Uh, You like those noir, you like those Michael Conley kind of cut-edge books, make sure you get this one. Again, it's available on Amazon right now. You can go pick it up. We are going to take just a short break. We are going to then be back with our next guest, Navy SEAL Tom Shea. He's going to talk about his latest book, Unbreakable. Um, We were given him as a guest by one of our good friends. She said she was up till 5 o'clock in the morning. She couldn't put the book down. She said, you've got to interview him. And then when we saw his story, it was like, yep, let's get him on. So people, you should be fascinated about this one. Uh, We're going to take just a short break, and we'll be right back after this. Hold on. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here again with Suspense Radio Inside Edition. We are now going to transition into our next guest. The book is called Unbreakable. It is by author Tom Shea. He is a highly decorated Navy SEAL. Um, he's going to share some of his stories about the years of combat that he's had in Afghanistan, and there's some riveting stuff in here um, that you make sure that you want to get involved with. I mean, it, uh, like I said, a friend of ours got this and said, you have to interview him. You know, I couldn't, once I started, I couldn't stop because everything was just so, uh, I mean, it was it was just so engaging. So, Tom, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for bringing me on. I hope that I can add some suspense to suspense radio. <laughs> I'll tell you, your life is is a, is a, is a mecca of suspense, uh, considering the things that you had to go in and do and some of the stories that I heard maybe third-hand that I'm going to kind of interesting from hearing from you, which, um, uh, you know, some of the things about going on missions and kind of having to, 
get all your affairs in order, not realizing whether or not you were going to be here to be able to talk to us on the radio or get with your family and things like that. So a lot of a lot of cool things. But let's talk about Unbreakable. Let's talk about the book, why you decided to maybe get this and write this. Uh, the book's been out now since October 2015. So, uh, But again, everything in this, of course, is so very relevant because – you know, these stories never get old. They never go away. They're always so great. So tell us about Unbreakable. Well, I uh, I was towards the end of my career. Right now, it's obviously the book is old, and, and I've since retired. And when I was getting towards the end of my career in 2009, I was a SEAL platoon chief. And that was the, I was kind of the guy in charge of all the tactics and keeping guys alive in really chaotic situations. And, and in 2009, my platoon was tasked to go into Afghanistan. And on the verge of me going, my wife, Stacy, had asked me to write down what she wanted to pass on to the kids in case I died. And that was kind of the genesis of the book. And the writing of the book happened during combat where I was either going out into a situation I didn't know I was going to return from or having come back from a, a, a you know, a, a combat engagement and then writing down some real notes kind of written in dirt and blood at the time. And, uh, but the problem is I returned. And I say that that was a problem because there was no, no no drive at, at, at all when I was on active duty to be published. And because I was a very private man, I still think I am, but when a book's out, all that privacy goes away. Right. And so <laughs> and uh, so the, the book was really uh, notes between Stacy and I and my kids uh, about either either my life and the goings on of a of a seal and then ended up being 13 lessons that I wanted the kids to be able to do in their life and i think it's funny if you know the authors that have been on here and the people that are now listening books are kind of crazy because the, the author doesn't have a lot of say in in the title and the original title when it was in the manuscript form, you know, close to retirement, Stacy and I had agreed that we'd try to get it published. And so the original title was Spartan Woman. And because I think the most untalked about subject of among warriors is the value of a no-bullshit woman in a warrior's life. And I wanted to try to make that point to my kids because I think men flounder without a strong woman. And uh, but the True. publisher didn't didn't like it, and so it ended up being unbreakable instead. Interesting. Now, when you kind of were sitting down and putting your notes together and having to relive some of these situations and some of these things, uh, you know, when you look back now, just 2009, like you said, Afghanistan, eight years ago, you know, there's probably a lot of things that you hope that you would have forgotten and maybe not have to drug up. I mean, how how was that experience kind of having to maybe relive some of those very uncomfortable situations and, and those times when it was a lot of tense and, and maybe lost a friend or, or some of those things? How was that being able to, you know, emotionally bringing that back out for you? Well, I, I, you know, I've been asked that question many times, and I do hundreds of keynotes, and that question comes up. 
probably inside of the, 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 the brain space of PTSD and does that still affect me? The problem with Navy SEALs is that they're so used to that mental, emotional, physical component just by the years of being in combat, you actually like the thoughts because that's been your life. For, it was my life for 23 years. So it was easy to go back into that emotional space and relive it uh, in the writing down of what I, what I thought was going on there. And, uh, but I love that. I, I love to be able to go into those emotional places and not be you know, shocked by it all. Because I, you know, I'd spent 2,700 hours in active firefights in my career, and Jesus. I'm glad. I'm glad that I was able to. <laughs> I, I think I can I'm glad you're here. 1,700 hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I mean, just to think about that number for a second. I mean, that's. I mean, to have that kind of tension and that much, you know, your life hanging in the balance that many times. I mean, for, for some of us, it's like you're driving down the street and all of a sudden someone cuts you off and you, like, stop for a second. You're like, oh, my God, that, I almost lost it there. Yeah, you did that how fucking many times? I mean, that's the feeling that we had <laughs> once by a car maybe running us over. Well, I, that's what I wanted to also put out in the book and what I've done now since retirement is be able to translate that in a learnable space. But that's a valuable skill to have is to be able to, I call it, kind of thriving in those chaotic situations. And, you know, the, you know take, for example, so I, there are 13 lessons in the book. And I've, right. I've been able to translate the book into, you know, online lessons and then be able to train executives. And the first lesson, I think, is profound. And here's what it is. Honor your word. And for three weeks at night before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning and or rather when you and when you wake up in the morning, do a simple task. And now there's probably 400 people that have gone through the training or I've been involved with in trying to get them just through lesson one. And only 18 people have been able to do it. And it's not a hard task. Wow. It's just do 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, and 10 squats right before you go to bed and right when you wake up. It's not difficult, but what I found is that that's what I wanted my kids to be able to do is if you can't honor your word or give honor to the stuff that comes out of your mouth, there's not much possibility for you. And so that's what I've seen now in the SEAL community, if you don't honor your word, you're stuffed. If you promise something, you didn't know whether you know how to do it or not. It came out of your mouth, and you're held accountable to it. And all the shields that I know live inside of that space. When they say something, it's true. And that makes them a very valuable commodity to have and valuable friendships to have there. And so that's what I I think that is a premier lesson. And I I tried my best to convey that in the book and, and I, you know, some people don't even know there's lessons in the book, which is fine. <laughs> That's all right. Is that what led and you so, to start yeah, your ahead. alliance? Is that what is that what led you to kind of start this alliance that you started the um, the uh, Adam and Time Alliance? Well, I, you know, the book came, and you know, 
I think most listeners that listen to your program kind of know something about books. In case they don't, I didn't. So, uh, right. you know, we finally got – we didn't get any publishing house to touch it because I was a new, new person on the block. And so we did an independent publisher, and we launched it on Memorial Day, kind of that time frame. And, sure. uh, and it just went crazy. And the reason why I say that's kind of good and bad is, you know, authors don't get money on the independent side for six months because there's a lag in book sales and, and all those costs that go into, into, the, into the book sale commodity. And so the book mm-hmm. does really well. We're printing books out like it's, like it's, you know, the greatest thing in the world. And then finally, six months later, we see value in it. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. A couple of CEOs of companies re- had read the book, and they called me, and they said, do you have a, a way to teach what you're trying to say in the book? And, you know, you know I have to be honest now, and I'd laugh at, at this point in the game, but I didn't mm-hmm. at the time. So I spent about a month writing a curriculum that I could teach one person at a time uh, very valuable skills to have in their life. And now, three years later, it's – you know, it's worked 100% of the time. And the curriculum takes a long time. So I designed a company out of a request to train other people uh, just from the, from the experience of reading the book. And that's how Adamantine Alliance was developed three years ago. Gotcha. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, I just... Just from the idea of, you know, you being able to use, you know, your experience and take that into a, you can still have the same type of, of you know, of mental, you know, toughness that you had to have in your situations just to stay alive. People can use that same thing just in their daily life to just make themselves, you know, a little happier, you know, to make their lives a little mm-hmm. smoother. And and that's just and that's kind of you know the cause people I don't think realize how interconnected those things are until you start right. using it and and realizing and saying, oh this this shit really does work. Yeah, well yeah, that's <laughs> what we keep telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not lying to you. Well, well, I got I got a real deep sense that it wasn't you know success isn't based on you know being a seal. It's not based on. Uh, you know, genetic coding. I've not seen it that be true. And my See, I always labeled success, it, and I always labeled success. I'm like, success is something that I can't tell you if I'm successful. That's for something to you to look at me and realize. Do you think I'm successful? I can't define my own success. I, I could never. I cannot do that. Yeah, it's kind of smoke. It's like smoke. You know, sometimes it when is. you're doing really well, it doesn't feel like you're doing well. And right, and, you know, yeah. And so, what happened to me is I found something that is inherent to everybody that happened to be in combat. Uh, we got overrun by the Taliban. We were probably four and a half months in Afghanistan. We thought our shit didn't sink, so to speak, because we'd won so many times and just over, you know, over, through overwhelming odds. Now we're four and a half mm-hmm. months in, in country. And we get our asses handed to us. And in a 45-minute firefight, we all ran out of, of uh, 
ammo, food, water, and it it got to the point where we, you know we're exhausted in 45 minutes. And these are grown warrior Navy SEALs. But how many? Were, how many? How many were there? How many on your side? Uh, you I had about? nine guys with me, and there were 36 Taliban within 300 yards of us. And okay. it got to the point where we're throwing grenades over the wall. They're coming back over, and I had to call a B-1 bomber on, and I had him drop bombs uh, within 200 yards of us. So we got hunkered down thinking, you know, bombs don't always hit where they say they're going to hit. That's, that's our guys damn like, sure. Well, we can't fight. You know, right. it, it was clear we we couldn't fight unless it's hand to hand. And I tell you what, hand to hand is for the movies. It's oh, not for real. It? When you're really fighting hand to hand, it's touch and go, and you never want to get in that situation. So I said, hey, drop it clo- as close as you can get to us. And he he cleaned out his arsenal, and. So in that 45-minute fight, we ended up, uh, you know, a lot of guns were going off. But so we did some killing ourselves, and then at the end of it, 36 Taliban were gone. And but our our we had a predator watching us the whole time, and our leadership at the time said, "Hey, you guys are doing so good. We're going to keep you there for another day." I'm like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> so we stayed all other day. They resupplied us. And so what happened there to me is more to the point. What happened there to me is I'd quit. There had been a point in time in that 45-minute firefight that I got rocked by an RPG. I'm laying on the ground, and I could, I could see it all unraveling. And I couldn't create anything to get my body going again. And the only thing that shifted for me was I remember my wife saying, uh, don't fear dying. It makes you weak. Fight your way back to us. And that's the only thing that changed. Like, I didn't all of a sudden get, you know, you know, stronger. I didn't all of a sudden, a gun didn't materialize out of nowhere. I was out of rounds. I just said, well, you know what? I'm going to fight. That language shift in human beings can be trained. But... It always happens at the verge of acknowledging that the shit's going to hit the fan, and then your language goes, yep, I'm going to die. So I I hit that point where I was acknowledging that I was dead because I was getting overwhelmed. But then again, what shifted was I had what I now call internal dialogue shift, and it got me back into the game, and it got the rest of the guys back in the game because they were having the same experience. So we fought for our lives for about 45 minutes, and then – we ran out of everything totally, and I said, hey, bomber, just drop everything on us. So he didn't write on us, but close to us, and it, it, you could, we got buried in the rubble, and it got all crazy, but none of my guys died, and none of them got injured, and that couple of us ended up getting silver stars for that mission because we risked our life way too many times in that, during that 45 minutes. And uh, so that it was a language shift in me, and that can be trained. And uh-huh. it has nothing to do with genetic code or, you know, your family background or your cultural environment. What happens inside of people, and you read this throughout history, what happens inside of people is really what matters. And having been a SEAL for so long, that's the only thing that's going on, is what's going on inside the SEAL is the most important thing. 
and uh, and and executives can learn it. And I've trained you know pro athletes and anybody willing to go through the process. I don't mean to be long-winded, but yes. No, that, you can, I'm just sitting here just listening, and I totally forgot I have to interview you, but I'm like, fuck, this is, this is a fascinating <laughs> conversation. But the, I, I am kind of curious, in, in, too, is, so I, I know there's a lot of downtime, of course, uh, if it's peacetime and there's not a lot of things that you have to do. So when all of a sudden you kind of get that call uh, from your superior that is like, okay, you know, this is what you're going to have to do and this is what's going on or you got to be there in 24 hours, do you guys have to kind of like flip a switch because uh, to kind of say, okay, let's get into the mode, and then, or is it just muscle memory and it's just memory of you just getting everything boom and then you get your orders, you know what you got to do, and you just kind of go in and do it. How is that from kind of beginning before, and then all of a sudden you reach your mission, and then mm-hmm. now it now now begins. Hopefully, the way that you uh, thought I, it was going to happen, but yeah, I think there's a disparity in just because you probably haven't seen or been told that there's a difference. So most of the army or the Navy or the national guard lives in a condition called off and on Uh, a seal doesn't live in that condition there. It's always in conflict. You're always training and you're always training in, in a wartime situation. And what that means when you're actually not in combat is you know, there isn't a week or there's probably a couple days that go by that you're not actively in, in chaos or, or you're at home or whatever the case is or you're traveling. But, gosh, I was training 280 days a year for 23 years. And then you get your month vacation. So you're always in this condition called chaos or on. And there's a high burnout rate because of that. So it doesn't really occur to a seal as, wow, I was sitting here, uh, you know, you know, smoking a cigar, drinking a, you know, a scotch, and then the button or the button turned on or the balloon goes up. The balloon's always up, and gotcha. it's always so dynamic and changing. It drives most people crazy until you embrace it. And the the funny thing for a seal, the only time you can win is in combat. They don't let you win in peacetime. The training department never lets anything succeed. No training mission ever succeeds. It always fails. If something always breaks, huh. if it's going too good, notionally they'll just kill the leader and the you know, the communicator and the breacher. Now you guys figure it out. So you never feel like you're gonna win until you're in combat and then you're like, Oh my gosh, we can win. And it drives everybody crazy until they actually go to combat, and combat is welcome. To everybody else in the military, that's not the case. Hmm. Now, when, I mean, it just, it, I can't, I mean, of course, someone who's never been in that situation never will be in that situation. I, it's very difficult to kind of, and I think that 99% of us are very difficult to kind of wrap our heads around what, you know, how that could feel but then you're kind of taking that mentality again, using it into real life. So how could someone like me learn that Navy way, you know, that Navy SEAL way of life and turning it into mm-hmm. my, you know, into the, you know, the normal mundane getting up, going to work, kind of doing that work. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's actually simple. So without getting into all 13 lessons or even the curriculum that I've designed, just take the mm-hmm. first one. Uh, try to honor your word. The moment you make a promise to something, you're going to create a condition called it's going to get uncomfortable really quickly. Uh, like, you know, anything. So you promise to do five radio interviews every day for a month. You know now from your background something's going to happen. It's going to get uncomfortable. Electricity could go out. One of the people don't call in. All those intangibles become really tangible once you make a promise to do something. The key is get really used to being uncomfortable and adapting. Anybody can do that. As long as you get used to uncomfortable, you will find a solution to everything. Because if it's, it's going to be uncomfortable, whether it works out or not, just get used to it. And most people, I find, want comfort at the sake of success. If you can just, like even if you're married, if you have kids, that shit is uncomfortable. <laughs> if you, you know, it, it is. Hey, I've been married 22 years, four kids later, grandkids <laughs> coming, so I know yeah. what you mean. If you are okay with that, you never know what you're going to get, just stay in the game. You'll mm-hmm. stay in the game longer than anybody else. So your wife has a bad day, you have a bad day. Even the worst thing could happen, stay in the game. Right. That leaves itself to a lot of more advantage to human beings when they don't seek comfort anymore. That's just lesson one. But the moment you make a promise, you darn right that something's going to happen that will try to take you out of that honoring your word. And, you know, that's what I, I see it everywhere now is the difference between success and failure is the person who can't be uncomfortable two more seconds than the person that can be uncomfortable. And, I, you know, I've trained hundreds of CEOs now they just are really okay with things being not perfect, but everybody yeah, else. Because nothing it ever perfect. is perfect. Nothing Never. ever is as it seems with your eyes. The eyes are almost the biggest liar. It's never, nothing is ever as it really seems. There's always something else, and that's where you have to vision it. True, and your everything. Yeah, yeah, your senses are about eighty-five percent true. The other fifteen, you just never know where you're going to get it. And that's, right. you know, and like even watching a suspense, you know, thriller, that's the key is it's uncomfortable until you figure out who the, who the bad person is, but they only allow that to happen in the last two minutes of the movie. You know? Right. right. All the tension's the, building up to that point. Yeah. And that tension is what makes it great. And yeah. greatness is in embracing that tension. And that's that's now, really the great great aspect of the, what I've learned. One other question here that that I've always wanted to kind of ask too is, how many now you know you've had you know hundreds of missions, but so many of those, of course, every day go on right now happening that we never hear about. It's always those things like that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. did you kind of have you know is there one that maybe you can talk about quickly that is one that people would just, you know, you don't have to mention names or anything, that people would just be like, wow, I mean, you know, we had no idea. Because, you know, we just heard about the mother of all bombs being dropped, and you hear about some of the bigger things. 
but you never hear about the little things that, that make such a difference that you're out there doing. Uh, I would say as a young as a young seal before the media got attentive to tracking seals and then, you know, all that political nightmare that happens. But as a young right. seal, uh, I'd probably been in for two years and the, the day the bomb started dropping in Kosovo and most listeners, depending on your age of listener, won't even remember that there was a war in Kosovo. I know. Uh, Look it up. So, everybody. Google war. In, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember it. Yeah. So, yeah, so back in the 90s, we, uh, Clinton decided to engage what happened. The Serbia, Serbia took over Kosovo. And my SEAL platoon was the closest platoon there, and we got called to go in and rescue the U.S. ambassador of a border state called Macedonia. And mm-hmm. so to us, that was, that was the biggest thing going on in the SEAL community at that moment. Nobody knew about it. So we got tasked. We were riding on a ship. They, you guys got six hours to you know, practice this mission, get ready to go. You're going to go find the ambassador and bring him out. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. You kind of get trained for that mission, but you're not ever ready for that. So we got picked up by a, a helicopter from the, from the ship that we were on. We flew into Macedonia, and then it was the funniest thing that ever happened. We got picked up by the British Special Boat Service, and another kind of secret mission force that's from England. And we got put into the back of a flatbed truck. And it was it was like a, and you never know these things going on, but it's just fun to look back at. So we're all in civilian clothes. We get put in the back of this truck, and they drive us to the emb- close to the embassy. And they're like, hey, hey, mates, get out. We're not going to go close to that. That's all yours. So we get dropped in the middle of a street, and everybody's looking at us like, who the hell are these guys? And so we patrol and do our thing that we're trained to do up to the, to the embassy, and it didn't seem like anybody was in the embassy. And we couldn't get in because everybody's, everything's a blast door downstairs. So we throw a guy up on the roof, and he goes into the window on the, first, on the second floor, and I was like, mm, now he's in there by himself. Mm. It's exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to do. So he comes <laughs> down and opens the door, and we're all like, hey, Mike. And he goes, hey, I didn't find anybody. We're like, well, the ambassador's got to be here. Is there any dead people? No, no, nobody. Like, there can't be nobody here. There's got to be somebody. So we finally found the downstairs vault. And it was, it was like the movie. You pick up a phone, it rings on the other side, and someone on the other side picks it up, and they're like, you know, hey, we're here to get the ambassador. And they're like, who are you guys? Hey, open the door. We're Navy SEALs. We're here to rescue you guys. Open the door. So it took us an hour to convince them that we were who we said we were. So they opened the door, grabbed the ambassador, and it was just a, it was a clown show from my you know, professional point of view. But that's a, those missions are going on constantly. It's the you know seals are out doing things that are way over their heads, and nobody's hearing it, hearing anything about it. And uh, but I would say every month, those things are going on. So you're like in. 
So you're like in a civilian clothes, like a Metallica T-shirt, just kind of doing yeah. your thing. <laughs> Holy yeah, shit! Everything, that's everything's concealed, no body armor on, because we weren't uh, we weren't authorized to really be in country. But we had right, to get the right, U.S. Right. ambassador because he's a state asset. So once oh, we stabilized that, we ended up being there for three more weeks, and just watching the you know the jets fly overhead and they're bombing you know Kosovo and then. More people are coming into country, and we're trying to organize ourselves. And got to remember, SEALs, aren't, their primary mission is combat. And then when you take them off their primary mission, uh, they'll adapt and overcome, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. And so we're not a guard unit where we don't really you know, want to tout that we're a security element. Right. So all of a sudden, in, in a day, we had to be a security element, and we stayed in that position for – three weeks of uh, getting about two hours of sleep a day, you know, doing everything for this ambassador to keep him alive. Oh, well, Tom, I'll tell you what, man, we could sit here for hours and I can listen to stories and everything else. It has been a fascinating conversation. Love to have you back on at any other time. Um, and I want to thank you again so much for coming on and sharing just a little bit about, you know, the adventures that you have. And of course, everything is, you know, about unbreakable and, um, everything that you're doing with your alliance is fabulous. So thank you for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure on this end. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. And you have a good one. We will talk with you soon. All right. Thanks, sir. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Tom Shea, and his book is called Unbreakable, A Navy SEAL's Way of Life. You can get the book now. If you also want to check out his alliance, it's Adamantine Alliance. It's A-D-A-M-A-N-T-I-N-E Alliance.com. That's his company. Go there. Find out about his unbreakable path and everything that he's got going on and make sure that you visit that. It is a fascinating read. We are going to just take a quick 30-second little break. We'll be right back with our next guest, good friend Kate White, talking about her latest book, The Secrets You Keep. So hold on one second. Everybody, that's kind of Kate's light. That was like a nice little intro song for her to come on. I like that. That was kind of cool. So we want to welcome, of course, we want to thank uh, Daniel Pine and Tom Shea for being on Fascinating Guest. But we haven't talked to Kate here in quite some time, and it's great to have her back on. Of course, you know, you might know her from The Wrong Man and Eyes on You, but she is back now with her latest book. It's called The Secrets You Keep. It's right in her wheelhouse. It's another psychological thriller that she is so perfect at writing. So, Kate, thank you so much for coming back on, and how you been? I've been good, John. Yeah, I've been good. Oh, it's always a pleasure to kind of hear. You know, this is the one thing about authors that, that I complain about. You guys only write one book a year, and I only really get to talk to you once a year. And then if you skip <laughs> one, then it's like two years. And I'm like, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just uh, I, 
I actually have a second book, Another Bailey Wagons, coming out in October because basically as we were looking at the election, me and Harper Collins, and seeing how crazy it was and how much airtime it was eating up, we decided to bump The Secrets You Keep, which was originally scheduled for 2016, to this year. So it's a little crazy because now I have another one coming out in October. And so, but I'm just, I'm, I'm writing as fast as I can and running as fast as I can. I know, staying busy, that's always a good thing. I guess it's, it's always a good thing if you're staying busy and you're, and you're continuing to write because that means, you know, you're staying busy and continuing to write, and that's the, what fans like to note about. So, of course, um, you know, when people pick up your book, I mean, they always, you know, you always just do a fabulous job at your psychological thriller, and you have such great characters. So tell us about what you got going on here with The Secrets You Keep. Well, this is the first book I ever did that was sort of like a domestic thriller. Uh, John, it's funny. I realized one day that all my female characters were single or divorced. And, and I just thought it would be interesting to do a, a thriller about a marriage. I used to be the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, and certainly we, we focused a lot on relationships. But I, that wasn't such a big factor for me in the fiction. So this is about a self-help author who's been recently married to a guy who she's pretty much been in a commuter relationship with because of their, just their locations. And because she's in a car accident that takes taking her longer to recover from than she would like, she ends up going to live with him in the summer in Saratoga where he works. And so suddenly instead of just seeing each other on weekends, like they did the first year of marriage, now they're living together. And at first it seems great, but then some weird stuff starts to happen. She finds something really odd in the house. Her husband seems evasive, suddenly secretive, and then a woman who caters a dinner party for them is brutally murdered. And so the protagonist, Bryn, begins to wonder if there's something going on, that her husband isn't who she thinks he is, and that her own life might be in danger. It's like one of those stories from, you know, like those IE Discovery Channel shows, like, who the bleep did I marry? It's kind of in that same (laughs) kind of realm where, you know, it's like, who the hell did I marry? Because when you know when when you start putting your characters into situations like this, and it's just a fascinating job that you do, and is when when Bryn you know starts to question her husband. I mean, that's when her emotions start going into overdrive and a roller coaster. Because then it's like, well, no, he can't be. That's not who I married. And then you find something. Yeah, but maybe he is. So when you're writing that kind of from her point of view and having to get that in. Do you kind of put yourself in, like, how would you kind of react if all of a sudden you found out maybe your husband isn't who he thought, isn't who you thought yeah. he was? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite movies, and I know a lot of thriller writers love this movie, Fatal Attraction with Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, and there's a scene after the bunny's been boiled and yes. the, the wife is, is traumatized, the kid's traumatized, the Michael Douglas character, Dan, comes in and, and – the wife says to him, well, did you call the police? And he goes, not yet. And she goes, why not? And he goes, look, Beth, we, we've, we've got to talk. I think I know who did this. And that was always so chilling for me. And I think all of us who are in relationships, we feel we know the person, but there's always that fear of maybe 
we don't know what they're up to. You find something lying on a desk or you see a text that you think, whoa, what's that about? And I, I know, uh, you know a close friend of mine, when she found out her husband had been cheating for ages, it just, it was so hard to just, not just to the idea of him cheating, but just the idea of her life wasn't what she thought it was. And I think that's what some of us do have to think about sometimes when we think, when we discover something about a spouse that doesn't fit with the rest of what we know. Uh, though, you know, I actually had a funny experience, you know, my own spouse. Uh, I think I could trust him. But yesterday he got some <laughs> things uh, sent by his sister from, you know, his father had passed away and his sister sent up some stuff. And we discovered that in in, in the school, like, directory or whatever, two of his earliest girlfriends had looked just like me. So, hey, that was a funny discovery to make. But we don't want those bad discoveries. We just don't. Yeah, I mean – I thought you were going to go with um, the book or, or the, the movie Jagged Edge, which is one of my favorite. It's one of those ones where oh. you where, where you keep thinking, yeah, he did it. Well, maybe he didn't do it. No, he did it. Oh. Well, I don't. Maybe he didn't do it. And then you know you realize at the end what actually happens. I'm sorry. I mean, just like a 30 year old movie. If you haven't seen it right now, yeah, he does it. But um, it's just it, it takes you through that that roller coaster twist and turn, oh, which is kind yeah. of where. Yeah, and so yeah, when you're the writing, moment she uh, you know, discovers the typewriter in the closet. The typewriter, and, and then she takes something. it and yeah. runs out of the house, and then she types, and oh. then, right when she's getting ready to hit that E, and she hits it, and she's like, her world, you could just oh. see it just fucking collapse. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh, no, he did oh, do it. I know, but, I know. But you still wonder, when the guy comes into the room, when she's going to rip that mask off, maybe it wasn't him and someone was framing right. him. You still you, had that... That thought in your head. Yeah, you there was you wonder is there one more twist here? Yeah, and maybe there should have been John. Now that we think about it, there could it. have but, been. You never yeah, know. But, maybe it was like, oh my god, yeah. But uh, I when think you, through, look, see, there's so many mysteries in life, but the scariest ones I think are involving people that you love because you don't want to find right. out they're not who you think they are. They've done something that's horrible. Right, because that's where the real emotion comes from. It's not from the slashers where you're just scared to death. It's, I love this person, and all of a sudden now I have no idea who they are, but I've been sleeping with them, and I've shared my intimate secrets with them, and they know these things, but I don't know anything about them now. Is everything they've been telling me a lie? So when you're having to kind of write those psychological twists into that, how do you kind of keep that flow as an author? Because it is kind of like a roller coaster ride. I mean, it's almost like you get up and then the big climax, you know, you kind of take you down the big hill where it's like the realization of this could be going on, and then you start taking the reader through. So how, how difficult is that for you to kind of keep that pace going that way? Well, I do plot my books out. I know not everybody does, and I've interviewed people like Lee Child and Harlan Tobin, and I know not everyone does, <clears throat> not to put myself in their league, but at least just other thriller and mystery writers, I always know where I'm going. I know the, the big moments. And then the smaller stuff I sketch out four or five chapters in advance, but that at least allows me to kind of look at it and go, I need something to happen here. I need a 
twist or a pinch or something that's going to ca- catch the reader's breath. And that's that's right. helpful for me. I, I know there are people who do a great job not plotting out, but I have to. And with this, you asked me a minute ago about my own husband. I feel he's a great guy. Part of what let me keep my anxiety going as I wrote, wrote it was thinking about what if I were ever like Bryn? What if I started to feel that there was something evasive about my own husband or I, I found something that didn't make sense for me? And that kind of kept me hyped up during the writing. Mm-hmm. That's and, and that's good. I mean, that's something that, you know, you're kind of using that, um, you're kind of using that real life to kind of, put into the story and kind of using that real-life tension. Yeah, and I'd never had that really before to the same degree because I'd never written about anyone who was was in a relationship where they began to have fears about their own partner. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing, too, is is your last four or five books have all been standalone. Of course, you had your, you know, you, you have Bailey Wiggins series, but what... Are you going to go back to that? Are you going to go back to writing uh, any Bailey Wiggins, or do you, you kind of see yourself as standalone? Are you going to kind of do both? What's the next book coming out you know, going to be? Oh, uh, John, I am so happy to report that the book in October is a Bailey Wiggins mystery. It's called there Easy to Culture. And I just signed a contract to do two more Bailey Wiggins. It's interesting because I, I when you're a writer – you both have to think about your books and writing them and coming up with plots that you feel will engage readers and offer the twists and turns readers expect these days. But you also have to be stepping back and kind of managing your career. And I I, I, I did get a lot of encouragement to try standalones. And then the next thing you know, one kind of led to the other. And one day I woke up and said, look, I I love doing the Bailey Wagons. I know she's got a big fan base because I hear from those people all the time. Wait, what happened? Why has it been so long? So I'm really thrilled to be back at that, and I, I just want to focus on her for a while. Well, and your writing style when you kind of did your standalones. Your standalones are a little darker than, than your Belly Wagon series, so you were kind of able to explore your different sides of an author. So do you think that been writing these standalones and been in that world for so long, is some of that style going to now eke back into Bailey Wagons? And, we're gonna, and people, when they pick up book seven, are going to be like, wow, this is like a little <laughs> new twist on the story now that you kind of done. Wow, that's such a thoughtful question. I really appreciate that because I look the Bailey Wagons book. She's irreverent. She's cheeky, and there's mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of humor in that those books. But I think I just felt times had changed a little bit, and certainly just as you said, writing those psychological thrillers makes you come a little closer to the darker side and, and the grittier side. And so this Bailey Wagons is even though she's still got that cheeky sense of humor, it's grittier and darker. And I think that's just where I am right now. And it was fun to change it a little bit. And one of the things I did, because it had been a few years since I'd done one, generally Bailey is always solving these crimes one right after the other. That's kind of the way I've dealt with the time factor. So she's always sort of been around 33. 
But now right. she's 36, and I just I'm going to publish this summer a little timeline of what she's been up to in the last few years to give people a sense of where she's been. But that was interesting to do too, to kind of think about. Okay, she's a different person now too, and and she's changed. Yeah, I mean, because see, because the last one that you did, so pretty it hurts, was your last Bailey one. That one to me was like. Because uh, you wrote it in more of a whodunit, it was kind of a whodunit kind of style, and it was like more of like a mystery kind of. Uh, it was a little bit different than some of the others. So, when when that's kind of the last thing, and now you kind of go into another way, do you have an idea of how you think fans might kind of be like, uh, you know, going to accept it and going to kind of you know go, wow, you know, this is a little different than the last time we saw Bailey. <laughs> I think well, first of all, this is a whodunit too, in a in a sense. And oh, okay, good. It, yeah, so that'll be the same, and Bailey's personality is the same, and some of the characters that have pop up are the same. But I think, I think one of the things that all these psychological thrillers that women devour these days, they have given us an appreciation of, and an enjoyment of things that can be a little darker and aren't so Nancy Drew-like. So right. I, I, I don't think it's a big distinction, but I think there's a, I think it'll be a, a, a nice one. And also, you know what was nice for me just doing it? I read two psychological thrillers last week. I'm, I won't mention their names, but they both had unreliable narrators. And I am so sick oh. of unreliable narrators. I'm so I get sick you. of, yeah. okay, it turns out she's really this, or, oh, no, she really did that, and she's this way with him. And I love the idea of Bailey just being, who you know, what you see is what you get with her. Maybe she's a little bit, uh, doesn't always know herself perfectly, and she might have some discovery, but it's not that, oh, my God, she's actually a kleptomaniac or a pyromaniac or anything right. like that. Well, not to mention, I'm telling you, till death do us part, that cover is still awesome. <laughs> not gonna lie, yeah. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. Just yeah. looking at it, you're like, okay, that's an awesome freaking cover right now. I'm telling you. Thank <laughs> but you, John. Hey, thing, how do you feel? Do you think? Do you think the psychological thrillers were going to get away from? Well, girl in the title ever, and uh, maybe these unreliable narrators, have we had our fill of them? Or do you still think that you know, there's still room for them? Unfortunately, I think that if they still are popular, that people are still going to write them and publish, because the one main big mistake that I see a ton of authors do, and I even see big authors doing it, is they try to follow this trend of right. it's kind of like music. It's like everybody wants to, and I'll just revert it to what I know of, which is my 80s metal. It's like all of a sudden you had all these hair bands all trying to do the same thing. It was like they were trying to follow, and then grunge came. And then everybody tried to do, do grunge. And so then you saw it with the, with the vampire novels, and then you saw it with the zombies. Right, you know, right. You know, you see it. So, yeah, and I think the one thing that's difficult is, I think that this is a new golden age of writing because there's so many books that now you can have. But the problem for the reader is finding the ones that have gone through the process of where people have ripped it apart and taken it apart and made it better 
instead of somebody just writing it, having their mom read it, saying, oh, honey, you did such a great job, and then throwing it out there, <laughs> and people are kind of, right. and, they, and you're not really sure where to spend your money. So that's why, you know, reading a book like yours, people are refreshed to go, oh, thank God, someone who takes the time to put these right things in and to do these kinds of things. Because, yeah, I think there's too many trend chasers, and I think that's where that's where you kind of fall into the rut of you do. And I th- was just talking about it with, a, with our, um, Daniel on here who was on before. There's too many authors that write coincidences. I'm tired of seeing right, theories right. where it's on the back of the book, this is the most diabolical killer he's ever faced. No, it's not, because you said that the last five freaking times. So how can it be this time? You know, right, and I'm just right, going to, and I just yeah. use, uh, and I'm not dissing James Patterson, I'm just using Alex Cross because people know him. But why put him in a situation in page 15 that you know damn well he's going to get out of? There's no tension for me anymore on that. It makes no sense. Right. Because he's going to live. He's going to live. So stop putting him in the tense <laughs> situations. It's like, I don't get it. That's why the standalones, like when you write The Secrets You Keep and The Wrong Man and Eyes on You and you go to those things, when those are standalones, everything is on the table and anybody could perish at any time. And Alfred Hitchcock showed us that too with Psycho. Just because yes, she had bread, yes. that doesn't no, mean that she doesn't die point. on page 50 and something happens. That's the glory. That's the fascinating part of psychological thrillers and to get into people's heads and their emotions. Because I think that you do it, and I know that I probably do it. How many times when you're in a movie or in a book that you yell at the character, don't go up the fucking stairs, no, but they go up the stairs. But it's fascinating because you're emotionally involved with them. Exactly. No, that's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I like, and that's what I, and, and those are the types of things that I get into. And I think that we have to sift through so many things, and we have to go through so many to kind of find. And when people ask me, well, how do you find books? I'm like, well, the one thing is that I, I trust the author because I know who they are, and I've studied, and I trust the publisher, and I don't go with, you know, if the publisher's name is the name of the author, 10 to 1, he probably didn't go through the process. And so right. you really That's want right. to make sure that you know that. But when you have yeah. a Harper Collins or you have an assignment in Schuster, you have a Penguin Random House, you guys are going through the process of writing your book, sending it to your editor, getting it back and going, oh, my God, I just got an F on my English paper. Now I have to fix all this stuff. And then you do all that thing, but it makes you better. And that's why your books and that's why those books are so much better. That's yeah, that's why opinion. I think if you if people who are going to self-publish, they need to – factor into their budget, hiring an editor Editing. is really going to help them see the, see the flaws and go through the process, just as you say, John. Right, yeah. And, I mean, the, the one thing that, that uh, you know, that always fascinates me, too, when, when uh, you know, an author like yourself is you, you continually immerse yourself into something else, like, the secrets you keep in The Wrong Man are written by you, but there's still differences in the new book from the last book because there's things that you have to challenge yourself to do. You're not writing the same book twice. You're writing different characters and different emotions and different situations, and you as an author have to do those things. 
So when you sit down to kind of figure out this is what I'm going to do, do you make those conscious decisions in your outline? Hey, I'm going to do different dialogue this time. I want to have different scene setting. I'm going to make the city more of a character in this book. Do you consciously think of those things while you're outlining? Yeah, I try to. I try to think of uh, certainly character change because – you know, particularly with some of the books being first person, it, it, you know, you don't want a character to sound like Bailey when that's not her. And some characters are going to be uh, gutsier, or some are going to be more tentative, and and you want to factor that in. And you certainly want to think about location and how much you're going to bring that in. I think in this book, Secrets You Keep, because I set it in in Saratoga, New York. I did a lot of research up there, and I wanted Saratoga to come through. But with the wrong man, even though she lived in New York City, and, and I have to say, hey, she's on at, on Third Avenue, let's say, at some point, I didn't want the city to be a big part of it. It's just, hey, this is where she lives. She just happens to live in New York City. So I think it it, it is. It's all those things you have to factor in, particularly when you're on your 12th book because your reader doesn't want to read the same thing. She wants a change, and she wants to feel that this is fresh and this is different. It's, it's something new I can explore, and it's, it's not the, the same character. I just started a book last night, and I love the writer's first book, but the second book is starting in a very similar kind of rural setting as the other one. And I, and I was all I could think was, gosh, I wish you'd mix it up a little bit for me this time. Right. I mean, I think it's kind of the same situation that, and I'll just go to movies because it's on top of my head, it's kind of the same situation when people jumped into The Force Awakens with Star Wars thinking, wait a second, you just kind of rehashed Star Wars A New Hope again. You didn't really do anything different. You kind of played it safe. And and I think authors play it safe sometimes. It's like, oh, well, this formula worked before, so let me kind of do this formula again. And I think that if you start thinking that way, I think that you start losing your way as a writer because then you're trying to write for the fan instead of just trying to write the story and however the story turns out, it turns out. And sometimes that's just right. okay. It's okay. Yeah. The story's going to happen it, the way the I, story happens. You're... Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I totally agree that you you have to just write what you want to write. But I also, coming from the magazine business, one of the things right. that made – Cosmos successful is that we knew our reader very well. We did a ton of research on her. We did focus groups and surveys and we rated every single thing in the magazine. And so you had a sense of, wow, this is what she's yearning for and this here's how what we want to do can align with that. And I think what one of the handicaps that happens for for writers is that there's you know, publishing companies do very little research and they can't tell you much about your reader and you don't really have a clear understanding of, of what your reader may want, at, you know, in 2017. It's not that you have to do something you don't want to do, but it can be helpful to have a sense of that. And sometimes it's just helpful to get a sense of your readers from Goodreads or or Amazon, just the tone of her voice or Facebook. I, I find it really interesting, the people who write in, when's the next Bailey coming, just to see their faces on Facebook. I find that really helpful. 
to do, you, 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 you want to write a book you want to write, but you also have an audience. And I think for me it's important to have a sense of what they're, 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 they're craving so you don't totally derail. Well, and the one thing about the Cosmo thing is, as I will say, there's a guilty little thing. I loved it when my wife buys Cosmopolitan because when I can read the article on 17 ways to give her an orgasm, I'm telling you, that's for every man. <laughs> and we might not read the fashion part, but I'm telling you, we are in the bathroom hiding, reading that part. Okay, how, what the hell can I do? And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Men might not, they're not going to say, oh, I read Cosmopolitan. Bullshit. You're reading it, too, because you want to know what that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you right at now. one point, uh, Cosmo um, isn't what it used to be, unfortunately. Uh, they, after I left, unfortunately, um, there was a period where it just kind of, to me, went off the, the, the rails, off the rails a, little bit. a little but yeah. um, my, my old number two has been brought in to be the editor and she's doing a great job so it to me now it looks great again but um in the heyday it we had three million male readers and they were just like you john they said they oh, yeah. wanted they wanted it to have a look at the other team's playbook and they loved to read it and i was always touched by all the men who wrote to me the number one thing they said is that they did it be- so that they could be better at pleasing a woman sexually exactly. in every way possible. And I used to take such comfort from that. Hey, you guys, you really, you you really got us in mind. You're you're thinking about taking care of our needs. That's nice. Well, Kate, we are up to the break, and I got to get out. So it is always fascinating to talk to you. I can't thank you again so much for coming on. And of course, oh, the book, John, you know, so the, for the secrets me. you keep. Thank you again so much. I hopefully I see you at Thriller Fest this year, or I'll see you around you and we will. can get together and sit down and talk for a while. All right, great, John. See you at Thriller Fest. All right, have a going. Bye bye. Bye bye. So again, everybody, that is best-selling author Kate White. The book is called The Secrets You Keep. Make sure you visit right now katewhite.com for more information on that. We want to thank you all for joining us. It's been a great show. And, of course, make sure that you always keep reading and check us out, suspensemagazine.com. We will see you next time. Goodbye.